my philosophy is that if it's work that everyone wants to do, like if it's bright, shiny work, then you spread out the opportunity so that everyone gets an opportunity. And if it's grunt work, then also you kind of essentially spread out the opportunity. So essentially, that's kind of like, you know, your way to fairness, right? So uh, my thing, like the, the broader question is, you just have to make sure that everyone participates in all phases and not just the fun stuff. Like, you know, that's the way to a healthy team. Welcome to the Software Misadventures podcast, where we sit down with software and DevOps experts to hear their stories from the trenches about how software breaks in production. We are your hosts, Ronak, Austin, and Guang. We've seen firsthand how stressful it is when something breaks in production, but it's the best opportunity to learn about a system more deeply. When most of us started in this field, we didn't really know what to expect and wish there were more resources on how veteran engineers overcame the daunting task of debugging complex systems. In these conversations, we discuss the principles and practical tips to build resilient software, as well as advice to grow as technical leaders. Hey everyone, this is Ronak here. Our guest in this episode is Uma Chingunde. Uma is a VP of Engineering at Render. Prior to this, she led the Compute Infrastructure Group at Stripe, and before that, she led Compute Virtualization teams at Delphix and VMware. Austin and I had a great time speaking with Uma. Our major focus in this episode was large-scale infrastructure migrations, and Uma shared many insights on how to manage them successfully. We discussed the importance of communicating the why behind a migration, identifying success metrics, creating a culture where migrations are identified as highly impactful projects, and much more. Uma also shared stories where parts of a migration didn't go as planned, how the team fixed the issue, and the kind of engineers she thinks would make good tech leads for these projects. There's a lot to learn from Uma's experience, and we had a great time speaking with her. Please enjoy this highly educational conversation with Uma Chingunde. Hey, Uma. Uh, super excited to talk to you today. Welcome to the show. Great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we thought we would start with asking you about your background and how you entered the infrastructure engineering space. Great. Uh, so I'm actually, I actually kind of joke that uh, my more recent work is higher up in the stack than my uh, my early career work. So my first uh, major uh, job in the US was working at VMware after I actually interned with them. And I worked on the hypervisor management group, uh, this product called vSphere. And if you kind of, uh, to kind of describe it in a very simple way, it, it managed a cluster of hypervisors, which was VMware's hypervisors. So it kind of was like the cluster management software. And, um, if you kind of further, that's actually what uh, companies like AWS or GCP or Azure use in their backend. So essentially, like, you know, when it's someone else's, mm-hmm. like, you know, server, it's usually like someone else's virtualized server that's like somewhere in the cloud. And so I started at VMware, then worked at Delphix that was doing a very similar product, but for databases, trying to virtualize databases. Uh, but I was kind of very cognizant of the fact that generally tech as an industry for over a decade now has been moving to SaaS. And so it was kind of like an intentional uh, effort to move to companies that are uh, essentially like, you know, software as a service and the the kind of natural extension for me was to look for a role in an infrastructure team because that's closest to what my experience was previous. So I did that at Stripe. 
mm. uh, most recently for a few years on the compute group. And now I'm at Render, which is, I think, another interesting abstraction where we're building uh, the next uh, next level of abstraction for people wanting to deploy to the cloud. Yeah, that's very interesting. So you mentioned you were on the compute group at Stripe. Uh, can you tell us more about your role there and what the compute group looked like? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so essentially, compute was uh, kind of the name uh, is intended to be a little self-explanatory. So the idea is that uh, Stripe, uh, like you know, is is essentially providing a payments API to users across the world, and uh, for everything that Stripe is running, uh, that's kind of essentially being run on a provisioned on compute resources that might be managed. I mean, we were hosted on a cloud provider ourselves, but if you are a product engineer at any company like Stripe, you don't necessarily want to have to deal with the integrity of the cloud provider APIs. So what my team did was essentially abstract away uh, what typically what a typical cloud provider provides in terms of like, you know, compute instances and build abstractions on top of those instances with our kind of uh, essentially this layer on top of that. So if you are a product engineer, you kind of have a lot of those uh, utilities abstracted for you and you were just kind of, you know, build, focusing on building your service mm-hmm. versus having to deal with uh, also the integrity of running the service. So we made it easy for you to build your service without thinking of where and how to run it. So reliability, scale. Um, we also did, so essentially we built in uh, our internal Kubernetes layer uh, also manage like you know the service to service communication via Envoy, which is like our, which is a service mesh that we had adopted internally. Oh, very interesting. Uh, so, would it be fair to say like your team built the abstraction layer for uh, rest of engineering to say, okay, I'm going to tell you my service and I'm going to tell you the compute I need and just run it somewhere in in data center on the cloud. Yeah, I wouldn't say we were hundred percent there, but that was like the reason for like my team's existence, basically. I see. What's interesting is I've seen a lot of compute teams who build this abstraction. Let me, I work on a compute team myself, so I can relate to a lot of the challenges you might be dealing with. Uh, what's interesting in there is you mentioned you also build the Envoy proxy layer to provide that service mesh capabilities. Uh, did you collaborate or did you have to collaborate with the network team as well on this or the traffic team to build that out? So I think the uh, with the traffic team, yes, very heavily. So we had a traffic team uh, at Stripe actually uh, because I should kind of clarify in the things that my team managed, we had like multiple clusters and the edge cluster was actually managed by our traffic team. And so they had their own uh, rollout of Envoy. So we worked very heavily with them and my team managed the kind of internal uh, compute cluster versus they managed the edge edge network and edge cluster. But yes, we, we collaborated together heavily. So the separation of responsibilities was uh, we we manage the network, the service to service communication for the internal, uh, for the cluster that we managed, and all the infrastructure we managed, they managed it for their layer. But there was heavy overlap, right? Because with with the network, you don't have such a clear separation. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, on usually, so your your product is essentially uh, a product for all the engineers at Stripe, and so the customers are all internal. Yeah. Which is good and also sometimes challenging because uh, they will give you feedback really quickly. When it's good, you, it shows right away and it's extremely gratifying. 
But sometimes different teams have uh, different requirements and sometimes the single layer of abstraction doesn't work for everyone. Um, how, how did your team or how in your experience have you dealt with these requirements in general when you know that this is going to work for 80% of the use cases, but there is going to be this 20% for whom we'll have to either give them access to the raw APIs under the hood or we need to do something else. Yeah. I think this is this is a really good uh, articulation of a common problem for internal teams. And also, honestly, it's kind of like a, a subset of a problem that any infrastructure product actually has. We actually had a version of this at VMware itself, right? So we kind of, I think one way to think of it is like cohorts of users, like you have your bulk users and then you have like your super or admin users that we would call them. So at Stripe, it was uh, it was essentially like an ongoing conversation right? Like what is the class of user that you kind of uh, optimize for and build your build your uh, interfaces for? And who do you kind of just say, actually yours is a specialized case. So it was like always an ongoing conversation and an open point of dialogue. Uh, but the, the idea was that because uh, you also kind of have the luxury because it's an internal team that you just let them kind of, you know, mm-hmm. run with the, their more, uh, with the more fine grain access. And there were definitely teams, uh, that had that for a kind of very clear example was other infra teams, like the team that managed data, right? They had a much more specific, uh, set of requirements. And they were also someone, for instance, where uh, moving a large set not all of their workloads could eventually be moved to Kubernetes. So they were just like a separate cohort of users. So our kind of overall broad strategy was thinking of these as cohorts of users and approaching them that way. And I think uh, over time, uh, something that we also realized is you do in the end have to draw a kind of dotted line to these users, to your external company users. So you kind of have to... uh, like either directly or indirectly optimize for the business. So for Stripe, it's like your payment users and the bulk, the most important payments products are where you will focus the most of your attention. But then like, you know, with, with key critical investments being made into uh, like, you know, say emerging businesses that maybe had a different thing or like uh, any other kind of one-off use cases, you, you do have to then make strategic bets where maybe you let them go develop on their own. So yeah, it was a combination of engineering and business decision, I guess is a good summary. Mm, that's a really good insight. Uh, I I didn't, I haven't thought about it that way, but what you said makes a lot of sense that along with working with the internal teams, uh, tying it back to the business itself uh, and then optimizing for some of the decisions you make and how you prioritize them. Uh, so now, now you've moved on to Render. By the way, congratulations Thank you. Thank on, on the job. I know you joined recently. And uh, as you mentioned, Render is also building uh, kind of a compute layer with another abstraction on top of it. And in this case, your consumers are actually not internal teams, but that's the product itself. Uh, So a lot of your experience ties into the product at Render really well. Uh, I'm curious, can you describe your role at Render? And uh, like, also what kind of similarities or differences you see in the product that you're building or the challenges that you see as users are using the product? Yep. Uh, so it's actually one of the, this actually really touches on one of my motivations for joining Render because um, I, I was already following them for a while uh, because I was like, okay, this is interesting. This is an interesting product. Uh, we kind of used to joke internally that 
uh, at Stripe that what our users really want is for us to really abstract everything else and just give them a way to run their services, right? And that's that's really kind of, you know, that that is what all developers want. So I had kind of been like, you know, following Render and there was always also the Stripe connection where uh, the CEO and co-founder is also an ex-Stripe. So, you know, there's just kind of like this association. So I'd already been following them with this interest in mind. So when they reached out uh, and wanting to talk to me, I was like, yeah, obviously, I mean, at a minimum, I want to learn how you're tackling this problem. Uh, because the way I see it is I have uh, the team that I was working on. And also I was part of a larger foundation. Uh, the name was foundation, but the larger infrastructure team, right? Like our equivalent exists at pretty much every company. Like LinkedIn, as you just talked about, has the same thing. Uh, all our peers like Slack, Lyft, Uber, all have uh, similar versions. So it's it's a pretty uh, standard problem. And the way I'm kind of thinking of it, the way, uh, the way this appealed to me was... Uh, it's at a larger scale, like Stripe scale, uh, you build a team to fix the problem for you. It's a similar model as if you're Google or Facebook scale, uh, you have your data centers at the next layer. If you are Stripe or LinkedIn or Uber or Lyft, you have an internal infra team, even though you're probably hosted on a cloud. But then what about the next layer, which is the even smaller developers? If you want to develop something, you either have to still learn infrastructure uh, like you have to kind of balance between learning the infrastructure to run your service or actually building your service. And yeah. so I could see the uh, the intuitively, like, you know, the, the need for this. And so that was exciting. I had never worked on this problem at this scale, however. So it was kind of really appealing to try out something completely different uh, in terms of scale, like build something from the beginning versus work with an existing system. Uh, and also for me, uh, I really like growing engineering teams and the people side of it is really exciting to me. So the opportunity to build a startup from the beginning was uh, was something I couldn't really pass up, basically. Yeah, that's that's certainly exciting. I know uh, for early stage startups, it's like if, if infrastructure is not the core product, that's, uh, you're constantly kind of the priorities are competing against each other do i build the application that makes money or do i build the infrastructure to support it Um, so a product like render makes a lot of sense and as you mentioned it's an early stage startup and there is an amazing opportunity to build out the engineering team from the ground up Uh, in terms of how you're thinking about building this engineering team and what you see at render right now like what are some of the things you are thinking about these days so right now our current thing is uh so i would say like since i've started a lot of my focus is also just like growing the team itself because uh, currently actually uh we have such good traction in that users want to use us uh, there's a clear need at, like you know essentially what you just described shows the need for that we're essentially pretty much gated on our bandwidth to keep delivering new features so it's it's pretty much That's a, a good problem to it's, have. it's a very good problem <laughs> to have right and the clear solution is uh, adding people and growing the team and that's what we that's what my immediate focus is and doing it in a way that is sustainable and like you know we kind of uh, like it's like a growing and scaling problem so that's like the biggest uh, thing that we're doing and essentially we we're actually like very transparent with our roadmap there's actually like a feedback.render.com that uh, folks kind of can see what we're building and currently it's just pretty much uh, like our opportunity is pretty much uh, like the things constraining our opportunity are our, our own personal bandwidth and our ability to execute 
And so that's where like, you know, just uh, onboarding new people in a sustainable way and just, just building. And that was partially kind of my excitement as well, which is after having done different things, it was, I was kind of missing the focus and the kind of more of like being in the weeds and just like uh, executing on stuff. Yeah. Uh, Being in the new role, do you, do you get any bandwidth for yourself to like do these deep dives with the team or design discussions or your time goes into other things? It's it's right now, I would say, uh, so my kind of right now, I would say so far, not a lot has, but the refreshing thing is, uh, which is very different and I kind of understood it, but I hadn't like really seen how much, uh, it would actually be the case is how much, uh, like, you know, there's just like a day-to-day overhead in a much larger organization, right? Like just your volume of email, just the volume of meetings, just the, just the overhead of communication that comes from a, a few thousand people is so much different from like my total team. Like I render as a company as 14 people right now. So when you think of that, right, you, you just kind of like, you know, cut through a lot of that. So I do have a lot more time to kind of, you know, actually sit down and absorb the product. Uh, so far, I think I'm I'm still scratching the surface, but I'm actually like very excited to be able to do that. Nice, yeah. nice, yeah. Uh, that sounds like a pretty exciting transition going yeah. from Stripe, which has been growing at a very rapid pace over the last few years, I'd say, uh, to a much smaller startup as well. Um, I wanted to kind of take a step back of like you you've pretty much always worked in these spaces where any abstractions that you're working on are generally going to be pretty huge. Um, and the impacts are going to be pretty big. Uh, and on the compute side, as you guys are growing this platform, a big part was, of course, you know, I'm going to keep delivering these features. And I would also assume that a lot of customers, um, while you are at Stripe, uh, may not have been on that platform already. Uh, so I kind of want to go back to kind of pull back onto the whole concept of migrations. And you wrote an excellent blog post on this a while back, um, talking about managing migrations. It was a great read, um, and we'll put definitely put that in the show notes. Um, but I would imagine on the compute side, um, there are definitely migrations that are going to be needed there. Um, some that are, uh, maybe easier than others and some that are a little bit, uh, more, uh, uh, yeah, scary, scary to even, uh, encounter. Um, but I think the blog that you, you wrote, uh, gave a very good rundown of just your thought process of how you go about it. Um, and I kind of want to talk about that more today yeah, of course. Um, and kind of jumping into that, um, but for starting any sort of migration, like what are some of like the, like, I'm assuming like the first part always is the planning part. If you don't plan for it, you're, I'm assuming pretty much set up for failure. I think I've seen this firsthand on my side, uh, migrations that have gone well, some that have gone awful. Um, so yeah, I just want to get your perspective on that. Yeah, I wrote a little checklist uh, in that as well, which is kind of like, you know, things to like, think of even before you kind of have written like you know a single line of code or done like anything to migrate some of it depends though on the time you have right like some migrations are planned and some are like you know last minute like i refer to the specter meltdown migration uh, that we had to do so i i think it really depends on how much time you have but i i do think it's kind of one of those uh, things or the metaphor of uh, measure twice cut once really helps so the way I think, uh, like to think of it is like, you really have to invest in the planning and it, depending on your bandwidth, you can obviously like, you know, constrain the planning to 
to being a quick iteration and then like keep keep going uh, versus like you know actually spend a lot of time doing the planning upfront. But uh, at a minimum, it's kind of like this checklist that I actually put together in 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 my blog, which is just like you know just kind of sitting down at a minimum for an hour and just like asking like you know okay what what does this migration mean? Why are we doing it? Uh, what are the goals? Like, you know, is 80% the goal, 50%, 100%, right? And like, what what is the kind of, uh, almost like OKR style, what's the 100%, what's the 80%? Mm. Uh, what's the priority? What are the constraints? Like, is, 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 is it like an execution constraint? Is it like a technology constraint? Things like that. So at a minimum, like, you know, so I, I try to like really summarize that checklist, uh, which I put in the blog into like the things that I just saw were very repeatable. So at a minimum, having this one meeting with the key stakeholders and like having this actually put in a document, uh, which which is like, you know, why are we doing this migration? Uh, It was actually uh, a colleague on the team who came up with this idea, which is like why uh, Envoy, which was like one of the first ones we did this for. Right. And that's like the output typically of, of this conversation, listing out all the constraints. So that's, I would say, is like the MVP of the planning, but we can do a lot more. Got it. Yeah, and that's, it makes a lot of sense of starting with a kind of like starting with a why. I think there's like, there's <laughs> been books about this as well. Um, and I think definitely applies here. Otherwise, people will say like, of course, why are we doing this? Um, you also mentioned, um, I, I really like that you um, touched on how far do we want to go with this migration? Like what what is, what do we want to call done? Um, which I, I think... I like myself also will say, okay, yeah, we're going to get this migration to the, to the end, but we don't really specify, like stamp it down of saying like, um, making it very clear what that is. Um, and you, you, uh, talk about how you want to have some sort of metrics to kind of track this progress, which I'm assuming is to like how, what you call done is going to be reflective of the metrics that you're able to capture. Right. Yep, yep. Uh, and that's what, and also it's kind of like can really help drive alignment. The metrics and what you call done is actually can really drive alignment between all the stakeholders. So the spectrum meltdown was actually the one where we started doing uh, the metrics and found them to be super useful because there we actually had a commitment to our external users, which we had kind of decided on, which would be like, we are going to be uh, uh, like, you know, essentially we had different percentages that our security team felt comfortable committing to. And then we communicated those to our external users, which is like this percentage of our fleet is going to be running on this update by this time. And that was based. And then we, that, uh, uh, so, so that, uh, uh, really helped kind of like, you know, frame the importance of the metrics to us. And then, because it was such a clear, clearly urgent thing that kind of like, you know, helped drive, but the, the metrics is, uh, that experience then helped me at least realize that if you don't have that urgency, you can still frame the, like, why are we doing this and what does done look like, even in the non-urgent case, because then it helps teams prioritize things relative. And it kind of drives clarity between, like, in this case, it's like, you know, you have your account managers talking to team, to their users. You have the leadership team wanting to know what, what our exposure is. You have the security team wanting to know how fast different teams are working on it. And everyone can just like look at this one dashboard 
uh, or like different versions of the same dashboard and just like get the same information. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, for like the metrics, I'm assuming like uh, on the compute side, I can imagine it's just like, um, let's say if it was like to patch yeah, uh, the cluster exactly. or something, it would be like, what do we want to call done at that point for the full migration? It could be 95%, 100%, whatever it is. Um, for some of the metrics, I can imagine uh, you can get alignment. Um, some of these metrics may exist, some may not. Um, have Have you been able to strike a good balance of like, there are some metrics that are like, this is the perfect metric that we want, but we don't have access to it. Um, it's We would have to put a lot of time on creating that metric, let alone. And how do you balance, like kind of like those those yeah. two sides of it? Like we, we have, at some point we have to say, okay, this this is good enough as a proxy. Yeah. We don't want to go too far down these ways. Yeah, no, no. I, I think this is, this is a really, uh, this is actually like a really good uh, topic to talk about. Sometimes building the metrics and extracting them takes more time than a lot of the other things. So I think in that case, it's like you, you can, I, I think as long as you have a good enough proxy, right? Like you can do something as simple as someone manually updating a spreadsheet, right? Like that's okay. As long as it's a good enough proxy and as long as it's not too much work. But I think you, so it's essentially like you need an MVP of the metric, which is, okay, I can, I can get like all the patch versions of this, uh, in this way. And then someone has to maybe clean the data and pipe it into the spreadsheet. And like, you know, it's, it's like a hodgepodge, but it's fine. It works versus it'll take someone a week to get it all automated. Then you just want to do the, right. the, the quick and dirty thing. I, I do think like it's important to focus on the right version versus having clean, beautiful data for this. It's it's like the goal of the metric is to drive the migration, not the metric itself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But that's a good call. Yeah. Uh, and for a lot of these migrations, um, these are usually, it's not just one team, not the one team that's just running the platform. It's usually one team that's managing the platform interfacing with many, many of the customers. So you, you got to work with many other people. So for a lot of these migrations in general, it's good to have, you know, a few folks that are kind of like driving um, this entire thing, which probably I'm assuming begins even in the planning uh, segment as well. Um, were there any sort of like key characteristics that uh, would make for a good like either tech lead or just a general lead um, in these migration efforts? I think someone that understands uh, that has breadth is really useful. Uh, so I think... Uh, People that are typically like, you know, understand breadth uh, and if they don't have an existing understanding are able to kind of, you know, uh, as they come up amongst roadblocks are able to then dig through them. So an example would be like, you know, uh, oh, we have these kind of weird stateful machines that are relatively harder to patch. And even though like, so the, the best case scenario is like, you know, you, you have like someone with a lot of knowledge of your systems that is like, oh yeah, we have these weird systems that are going to be harder to patch. So we get started on them, like, you know, start special casing them, etc. cetera. Uh, and if not that, then uh, you want people that are able to problem solve, uh, like, you know, kind of essentially debug. I think that being said, though, I think in the end, it's honestly like alignment and prioritization question, because mm -hmm. uh, the bigger problem often is that everyone actually needs what needs to be, knows what needs to be done, but they're just too busy to do it, right? So, so that I think is actually like, I would say the broader thing, like as long as you have alignment where the leadership team and engineering overall is like, okay, yes, this migration is 
the most important or the second most important i am going to spend x amount of time on it it's usually uh, the problem then gets tractable so the way i like to think of it is like you have the core team and then you have representation across the board like the core team has people they can go to and if they don't mm-hmm. have people they can go to when they get stuck that's when the everything starts taking much longer makes sense uh, i can actually relate to a lot of the things you're saying because uh, i was involved in the melton specter patching at linkedin uh, and stateful systems are interesting i just I'll, i'll just say plus one to that i won't go into the details because that's probably another conversation uh, but since you mentioned that you, as you're migrating these systems and you have these representations uh, across different teams and there's obviously binary alignment at the leadership level but as you go through the execution and the migrations take maybe quarter or more depending upon what you're trying to do and priorities evolve um based on business based on what's current within that team and sometimes you will see one of these teams who has a unique requirement and like you said there is some custom work that you have to do they just have to put in those hours and sometimes there are conflicting priorities and they cannot uh what are some of the effective ways you've seen to still push the migration forward uh, i'm not saying force someone to do the work but still kind of repetition helps repeat that hey this is why we're doing this is how it helps so i'm curious what are some of the effective ways you've seen uh, this helps in i think so one effective way is trying to make it as easy as possible for them to do it right so if there is prep work especially if there is generalizable prep work right uh, which is like say keeping like staging everything and then being like we have staged this this is where you go this is uh, the setting you change these are the scripts you run this is the how to and like you know generalizable and like essentially the the extra upfront support you can offer to teams that are struggling the better uh, like some tactical things we did was you know like uh, the team that was doing this would like run office hours and be like hey if you're stuck come come to these hours and we will help you do this work during those things like that so there's like that's the kind of like you know the upfront kind of uh, being nice and just like offering a lot of white glove support can get you a lot of way can can get you high. uh and then i think the other thing is in, uh is aligning which is so if they're not able to do it what is the underlying reason is it something else that is higher priority that has to be delivered instead of that and then that often comes to like business alignments which is like that org leader has to align with your org leader and be like okay maybe for this particular set of things for this migration we are either going to do a, get an exception or we're going to get some other team to help out and like essentially carve out a path like for that second step it's almost always like a business slash team alignment decision versus a technical solution right and then the technical solution might be that oh the core team actually does the migration for them but it's usually obviously like a discussion uh that's kind of like the two broad categories i would say essentially it kind of becomes like a and this is where i kind of alluded to in the blog post where getting specialized uh program or project management help via like a program manager or a tpm can be very helpful because uh, they are trained to kind of think of these as like holistic systems and people's problems Oh yeah, uh, that is true. I I cannot emphasize the 
role of a tvm in a migration effort for sure <laughs> a team could go crazy just doing that task itself and not the migration if you don't have that support exactly it's it's like the separation of responsibilities like there's a yes. technical work and then there's the organizational and people side and like i would almost say that in most migrations the second one is the bulk of where the energy goes Yeah, yeah. I, I should just say that shout out to all the TPMs who support all the engineering teams. We we talk about engineering and business. I just want to say shout out to them as well. <laughs> Or anyone who is moonlighting yeah. as a TPM. Yeah. Or that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you mentioned um and this was actually really uh neat to hear just now of like for these migrations you have you've set up these sort of like staging environments for teams to kind of say like hey, this is kind of the first transition before we move. fully onto the migration and and it's just kind of personal preference but i think anybody who talks about a migration it's generally not like a, a happy sort of thing or like uh, oh yeah let's totally do it sort of thing it's usually it's one of those of just like oh gosh what's gonna what's gonna mess up in this um because maybe like they could have been burned from other migrations in the past and in general migrations are just they're just hard right um so and i and i really like that staging idea because it helps at least for me i i see it as this proves to me that it's like it's going to prob- it's going to be it's going to work but also kind of de-risk uh some of the 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 bad fallouts um while during going through this migration and these are kind of like the technical things and i'm sure there's other ones too but are have you found other ways to kind of help uh teams kind of de-risk yeah. that and kind of like be less fearful yeah. um, of these migrations i think uh, going after teams that have maybe uh, i think getting some wins under your under your belt is actually key and i also wanted to pull on this thing that you just on the comment that you made which is that no one likes migrations i think depending on it there might actually be there might i have found for instance uh depending on the migration there were always actually a few uh super users that were actually like raring to go that wanted to be opted into the new system like like the ones that wanted to be on our new kubernetes cluster for instance right like they were like can like sign us up right now and i think one that's actually like a really interesting thread to pull pull on because that's like uh that touches on uh most users problems like right? users are willing to bear some pain if you can give them a reward right so what's in it for me so if you can actually find a carrot in your migration which is at the end of this this is what you will be getting that's actually the most powerful thing right and that goes back to why like why are we doing this right like what's in it for the user right. is it a compliance thing but even then there's like okay you will be the first to be like you know in the compliance thing or it's like i won't have to manage my infrastructure or i will get these better tools or i will get something so it's really important to actually like uh, make sure that there is if if at all possible you should actually have a very compelling reason for the people being migrated to be part of the migration because then yeah, then you're like you know that then you're halfway there and that right, that can right, really right. solve a lot of things Yeah, I guess that emphasizes again back to the planning part of why if you don't have that I'm assuming this is probably how a lot of migrations don't go through well. It feels like you're pulling teeth most of the time. Um and for these migrations for the folks that are working on it um like directly, the ones that are like uh, owning this migration and also potentially even other uh engineers that are, you know, more on the customer side that, you know, have to um work on this part of the migration. um and and you've hinted on this is like we need to find uh a way for them that they see a benefit they a lot of 
I can see a lot of engineers coming in, especially uh, newer ones. Um, they don't see migrations as something as like a shiny new feature that they want to implement. Um, this probably wasn't even part of their interview process. And they're just like, well, I'd have to do this thing that's just moving data from one point A to point B. Um, and how have you been able to communicate that to other engineers so that they can understand the like kind of the full impact of the work that they're doing? Like it's not a feature, but it's still very high impact. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's where one thing I've learned is you actually have to leverage multiple channels to make this effective. So one one channel is like you know you just have a landing page for for everyone, which is like why, like you know why why Kubernetes, why Spectre Meltdown, why Envoy, like you know why do I as an engineer care about this migration and you have to make sure it's like really crisp messaging. So there's like, and for every organization, there's often like uh, preferred delivery mechanisms. Like Stripe was a very uh, written uh, culture. So, you know, emails got read and like, you know, you could actually like, you know, send out a wide email and you could ensure that the majority of people would read it and process it. So that's in a company like that, you know, you use that mechanism. Other companies really like, there's like all hands presentation that maybe everyone goes to or like, you know, different channels like Slack is maybe a better one for some organizations. So you have to find uh, the, the preferred preferred communication channels for your organization and really leverage them. And then regardless of what the main preferred one is, uh, you actually have to repeat it multiple times. So you kind of have to like, you know, send the email, have the all hands have the VP of end send the email. So you kind of have to like, you know, make sure the message is getting repeated. So, and that's where the alignment comes in, which is you first done the, the prep work and done the alignment and got like, you know, your org leader on board and said that we are going to be sending this email. So either they send the email on your behalf or you send the email and they do a tap back, which is like, yes, everyone, this email is like super important. Everyone should be treating it as highest priority or they reference it in their notes or they reference it in the next all hands meeting. So you kind of have to figure out to your org. And this is also where the scope and the scale go, right? Is it like the team, the org, the entire company that's being affected? So based on that, you have to like create different channels for for the impact and then tailor your message accordingly. And this is also why, right? Like that's where you would then tailor it. Like, why should I care? What's the impact to me? And that's where like the delivery of the message and the communication really matters. An example is, right, like in the written communication, you want to, the casual user should get the most important information, like in, in that first above the fold kind of uh, thing, which is like, what's happening and what do I need to do and why should I care? And all the details right. below it. Got it. And being in more of this like leadership role, I think a big part has always been to always re- try to recognize the work that's being done by all the other engineers and such. Um now that you've worked on many other projects as well, including many migrations, how, how have you, have there been like other like specific or maybe lesser used ways of how you recognize like these, this type of work? Yeah, these engineers? for sure. I think the recognition uh, actually goes hand in hand uh, to kind of like, you know, incentivize the work because if you don't have the culture of treating this work as important, you're basically uh, deprioritizing it, right? Because Every engineer is like, okay, uh, I want to like a, a, a sample kind of somewhat extreme scenario is I want to get promoted in the next year. And if I finish this project, I have a clear path to promotion versus if I spend time doing this migration, that my path to promotion is less obvious. 
So if you've created a culture like that, either implicitly or explicitly, then you have a problem getting this work done, right? So it, it's, in, it's in all the reward and recognition that uh, work gets prioritized. So the way to do it is explicitly have the conversation up front, like, and that's on the managers and leaders, which is, this is explicitly work that everyone has to do, right? And so it's like, you have to avoid the urge to tap the same people or be like, oh, we'll tap the, the other kind of really bad signal is, oh, you just always pull the newest hire on the team to do the work who doesn't know what they're getting <laughs> into, right? Like that's like a big red flag. So you try to do, distribute the work evenly and fairly and recognize it. And the recognition is again like org based, right? Call it out in the promotion packet, call it out in the all hands. Maybe, maybe your company does cash bonuses. Maybe there's like, you know, peer bonuses, something like the same reward, reward and recognition system that you have for everything should apply for this work. Otherwise you're, you're implicitly making the decision that no one will want to do the work. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Those are some really good ideas and how a team and an organization can go about conveying not just to their customers saying, hey, this is how important the migration is, but also to the team doing the migration saying, you're doing impactful work and this is how it helps the business. Um, so in your blog, you mentioned that at one point in the compute group at Stripe, you were doing, I think, what, five migrations uh, simultaneously with a team size of less than 20. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one, that is that sounds extremely hectic. Uh, I, I'm curious, how how did the team manage? So I should, I should clarify that, okay, that ahead, statement. So a team member actually like went in, uh, I actually referenced him, Charles Hooper. Uh, so he actually just like counted. So they were not all active, right? Hmm. So they were ongoing. So essentially they were migrations that were like of things where like, you know, we had started this migration from version one to version two of our internal uh, platform. And it had just been slowly progressing for multiple years at that point. Mm-hmm. So that was one. And then there was another one to move uh, uh, to Envoy. There was another one to move to Kubernetes. There was an OS upgrade. So those, and, and all of them were being done with different levels of urgency and were in different stages. So not all of them were like things that people were actively picking up and doing. And that's the problem he saw and cited. Basically, he was like, we have these half done things, right? It's like, we have five parallel work streams that are like, so essentially what would happen is like we were in different places. So people would go chip away at one of these, like, you know, uh, upgrade a few more boxes while they're at it, do a little more extra uh, clean up here, do this. And that was the kind of ongoing problem. So the problem was that all five of them weren't all active at the same time. They had just been like kind of slowly proceeding for, as I said, the most extreme case was for multiple years at that point. And yeah. essentially it was just kind of, this basically was accumulated tech debt. Yeah, uh, tech debt is a sign of a rapidly growing organization. <laughs> so uh, I, I forget which, where was this said? I think it was about Google or somewhere where uh, there's no final version of the product. Uh, the one in use will be deprecated and the one that we want to use is being built right now. Uh, and as you mentioned that there were these multiple migrations which are going on and some of these kind of were moving forward slowly. Yeah. I think it would be appropriate to say that migrations are a marathon, not a sprint. And as the team is moving forward with 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 this work, sometimes if they go if this migration or any work that goes on for too long, it's only natural as humans that one would start 
losing some interest, uh, not because someone wants to, but that's just the nature of the work. So as a leader, how do you ensure the team stays motivated to continue on and prevent burnout in the process? Yeah, uh, I think really, really important topic, I think, especially for infra teams. I think I would almost like turn it around and be like, I think uh, migration and just like long running projects for this reason should actually be avoided in the sense that even if it's going to take multiple years, you should have clear cutoff points. And that's kind of the solution we took with those like, you know, multiple, like uh, up to five migrations, which were like the team collectively decided and the manager uh, Ian decided that they would actually just like focus and burn it down in one go because there's the cognitive and just like tech tech version of it which just continues if you just like let it linger so they actually just made it a goal to to uh, actually finish all of the ingoing ones and the the other side of it is that no one actually benefits from an incomplete migration because no one has access to like we always have these like cohort of people that can't use the newest tool. Yeah. There's actually a really good talk uh, by uh, a former manager of mine, Will Larson, which kind of seeded my blog, which is uh, migrations are actually like your way to fix tech debt. Because, you know, as you finish the migration, you're fixing the tech debt. So I, I think the way to look at it is actually one is keep it like actually time bounded and this goes back to the kickoff and like define the done point and then explicitly have it be on or be off like you know mm. so if, if you're going to like a problem with those migrations that had been lingering which is that we were not making an explicit decision to prioritize or deprioritize so they were just kind of lingering mm. so i think that's where if you have that explicit decision what does done look like? Will we stop at 50% or will we wait until 100%? And what does stopping, what are the costs of stopping? What are the costs of finishing? What are the benefits of finishing? So all of just being very intentional at every stage is what counts. And I think if you're doing that and if you're like being intentional and time boxing things, that's when you prevent burnout. Because uh, a good description of burnout is when people don't feel like they're in control of the that kind of destiny and so if they are constantly dealing with two versions of a system right like oh i already fixed this bug in the new system but i'm still having to like you know feel support for the old system because the migration isn't complete that leads to frustration so that's where you know if you have honest conversation be like okay we're going to deprioritize other stuff get the team to 100 percent then then you prevent burnout versus if you just let Hmm, that makes sense. Uh, I think the the takeaway for personally for me there is ensure there is an end state to the migration and ensure there is clarity on what that looks like uh, for the team working on it and also for the stakeholders. Yep. Uh, I mean, if you're the migration goes on for long, you're just ending up supporting two systems, exactly. which is more cost on the team. Uh, so as the team is wor teams work on these migrations and ev well once you're done with the migration people are super excited to work on the new system support the new system because usually it's a better faster improved version of what you had before in in that regard there are two aspects to it one let's build the new system and then there is the migration part it's like let's move the people move the customers from one to the other how how have you seen or in your experience how have people balanced work uh, which is 
which people uh, i should re- let me rephrase that how have you seen engineers balance this work one themselves and also as leader do you move people around who are building the system versus the people doing the migration because i can imagine as an engineer one wanting to build more and spend less time on the migration i think this goes back to the kind of it's like a similar problem to the reward and recognition one mm. right and my philosophy is that if it's work that everyone wants to do like if it's mm. bright shiny work then you spread out the opportunity so that everyone gets an opportunity and if it's grunt work then also you kind of essentially spread out the opportunity <laughs> so essentially that's kind of like you know your way to fairness right so uh, my thing like the the broader question is you just have to make sure that everyone participates in all phases and not just the fun stuff like you know that's the way to a healthy team Mm-hmm. makes sense uh and i know we're getting to this a little late but we love to talk about uh war stories and production outages in this in on this show and migrations are notorious to create them i should say <laughs> yeah uh at least in my experience the intentions are always good it's just we cannot foresee every scenario um so i'm curious are there any war stories related to migrations or otherwise uh, that you could share with us today i think it it's actually maybe harder to pick which ones i can can share <laughs> because pretty much all of them had some i was impressed by the team that ran the spectre meltdown migration though honestly uh because for for the tightness of the timeline and for the scope which is our entire fleet we actually had very minor hiccups given that so the interesting one was uh, where there was we ran into a weird incompatibility between uh between our OS version and the underlying uh, machines that were running and it caused some very interesting kind of uh, it caused an interesting production outage that was one thing because there was basically like a incompatibility incompatibility between like the hypervisor and the os and the packages we were running and it kind of took a lot of digging to figure oh, yeah. out exactly where that was and and i think that one was uh i think we were not the only ones who saw it and that's also an interesting anecdote maybe which is if it's something that's like almost industry wide which the spectrum meltdown was it's actually like you're not the only people facing it and that's where the first time actually saw the the leverage of the network i was actually relatively new to the team then so i was mostly like observing and coming in to see uh, what the existing team was building on but uh, we kind of reached out to a lot of our peers and got lots of like you know uh, that's lots of like you know support and also from the vendors that we were using on figuring this one out so i think that's maybe one thing that we haven't yet touched on which is like when you run into production outages uh of a ma- uh, like of a large scale sometimes you can like you know see who else is running into these problems mm-hmm. that's maybe one anecdote but happy to talk about other ones i have war stories from pretty much every migration oh yeah uh, i i i definitely want to talk about more but one question i have on this one is this sounds like a very nasty bug <laughs> where uh, it's like incompatibilities between different abstraction layers uh what was the impact like w- say for instance you rolled out the new patch what did the team see this is uh, so discovered? it was basically uh we were just kind of like the machines that had been patched were just kind of uh 
this has been a while ago so i'm probably stating it incorrectly with that caveat but they would basically uh there was just like a weird uh thing where they would seg fault and reboot basically so and uh, the cluster that this was happening one was our internal build cluster and so they would just like randomly reboot and so then it was like this trade-off do we essentially then roll back these machines because they are relatively isolated there was no external network facing so kind of essentially we did a trade-off where for a very short period of time we actually rolled back the patches on them and continued uh, working while we figured out what the right fix was Mm, and I think and this is the case where it really is like you know the kudos to like all the engineers that were in that incident like figuring it out live and it sounds like even the detection of this was pretty quick it almost well it was multiple days in that particular yeah I mean but yes well I imagine like while managing like such a large fleet it's and the worst kind of bugs are the ones that are like intermittent like that just happen every now and then so it's it's hard to know if it's because of that or because of something else um is that something that the team like has always considered of for any sort of these things like let's do it this bake for yep. a week i'm not yep. sure yeah i think that's like the, the staging and the rollout is important and that's why you know you kind of pick the less critical workloads first and then continue in this particular case we were lucky that it was somewhat localized there was a particular cluster which is again like you know uh if you if you roll it out uh, completely then it becomes harder to pinpoint which of the steps has caused the problem that you're seeing so which is why you always want to do it in stages that way at every stage as you're as you hit problems you know what's likely to have introduced the change and then you can roll back or roll or keep going and i think that's an important just way of maybe doing these things yeah identifying the issues early is very important because rolling back when you're more than halfway through is way too expensive yeah, yeah. And being able to, I, I think that's also where, like, doing it in a way where you can partially roll back, right? Yes. Uh, is is important. Yeah, I think that, that would also touch on kind of uh, how a team thinks about uh, the mechanism to migrate. Because one is you make the decision, the other one is you have to think about this as a new feature of sorts that you're ramping. And if something goes back, you need that undo button when you want it. Um, so thinking about the undo is super important, not just for features, but also for the migration part. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, you mentioned you have other war stories to share. We would love to dig into more. Uh, can you share another one with us? I think it was just more like, I think, I think mostly just uh, around, I think the more critical the infrastructure, the more careful you have to be with the migration, right? And I think, uh, I think just like just never, never underestimate what uh, what it is, and I think uh, how critical that infrastructure is. So I think we just had. Uh, so I think with Envoy, we had some like uh, it's it's like it's a great uh, piece of software and like enables so many things, but the 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 key thing is that when you when you migrate to it, like you know, as we did, we kind of went we were very careful like you know when a few few like you know set up by set up but then at some critical point you do have to like you know start serving up production traffic on it and i think it was just interesting uh how how many issues we kind of had like there was a time where we kind of had a, a few issues that was like 
because of the critical nature of a, of a service mesh, right? Like you essentially, we were just like essentially bringing down large parts of production uh, with our issues. The thing, the lesson there that we learned was uh, having a lot more diagnosability baked in into any critical infrastructure is, is really the key. Uh, and then that's, that was like our big learning. So, uh, and then also I think it was a big, another big learning of making sure that knowledge of a new system is really, really spread out early on because what happened in that particular instance was a very small key team had been, uh, had, was in charge of the migration and had been working on it for a long time. But then as it went into production, they essentially became the go-to people for on-call. And so we, so when these incidents started happening, they were the ones who were constantly uh, like, you know, dealing with the incidents. So what we had to then do is essentially like, okay, everyone, we're just going to like stop all your work, go fix the reliability issues and then continue. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, it's so important to recognize that we're making the trade-off where, you know, okay, it's time to pause, go back and fix the issues that are causing site up. Out. Like it's, it's a question of site up at this point. So let's go and fix them and then move forward. Uh, so render is still very early in very early stages. Have you seen any migrations yet there or uh, it's too early for that? Uh, not really migrations per se. Uh, but yeah, we have, uh, we've been, I mean, I, I think it's almost like uh, if you're smaller, it's almost uh, more fun because everything is like so much, you know, new yeah. and uh, fun and like also kind of can 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 be can be broken more easily because there's it's just a, a different stage and usually a one one question that we like asking everyone is uh, like what, what was the recent tool that you discovered and really liked i think one of the joys i've had of starting at a startup is because we're so small we really get to experiment with a lot of tools that are uh just like, you know, new versus, you know, like, uh, because our requirements are like, you know, for scale and just like overall are just like so, uh, so small, right? So I think uh, I would say one, one new one that I have liked, which is uh, this tool called Linear, uh, which I'm like very new to. It's essentially think of it as uh, issue tracking software. And uh, it's a really uh, interesting problem, right? And a notoriously hard problem, especially for uh, someone like me who's like lived through like the original bug tracking software that I worked worked with was like Bugzilla, right? So my expectations are very low. And also it's a very hard problem to solve because at scale. So I, I think it's like linear is actually like very refreshing in the way they're approaching this problem. And uh just I didn't expect to kind of actually like using uh, something like an issue tracking software, but they've actually made it like really, really nice and very oh, cool. That's pretty neat. That's the first yeah, I'll, time I need to check that out. Yeah, that's the first <laughs> time I've ever heard someone say that like the the bug tracking software because for, for whatever reason, well, engineers, managers, everyone, they just don't like either Bugzilla, Jira, or whatever the new software is that they're using. But we, we've got to check it out. <laughs> yep, it's definitely. Uh, is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners today? Uh, I think maybe more just like, you know, it's, I, I think since we touched so much on migrations, I think my big thing was like, there's just this theme around things where people hate the thing 
uh, right? You know, like actually bug tracking software is a good example, right? Bug tracking software, migrations, meetings, right? Like people hate all of those things. And one of the things that I would maybe leave uh, the listeners with, it's it's not the thing that you likely hate. It's the way the thing is being done, right? If you hate meetings, it's the way the meetings are being run. If you hate your issue tracking software, in that case, yes, it is. It is the issue tracking software, but it's also the way it's being used. If you hate the migration, it's the way it's being done, not the fact that you know it's going to unlock some new capability. Often in these things, like the the answer is to like step back and like why do you hate the thing? Everyone hates incidents, but there shouldn't be a source of misery again, right? For everyone, right. it's like um, like to your to the theme of this podcast, right? If you if you if like why is something like a misadventure versus an actual adventure like it's, it's always in the how often and the how you do it yeah yeah and i think a lot of these things are in, inherently just hard like you stated hard problems um so they depending on how much effort is being put into them uh they can get executed um not as well as other things yeah. that are probably easier in that st- that regards well um, well, well uh, one thing which I would just say for incidents is incidents are actually uh, unintentional investments in learnings. <laughs> it's like uh, you didn't plan for that, but there is a lot of learning that comes out of it. Um, Agreed. And then maybe uh, maybe this might be self-serving, but Render itself is a pretty delightful software to use. So maybe I, I can end with that plug. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. We'll, we'll definitely link to Render in our show notes and we encourage our user, uh, listeners to check it out. Yep. Uh, thank you so much again for coming on the show. It was uh, really enjoyable to speak with you about migrations and your experiences. Thank you for having me. This was, yeah. it was a really great talk. Oh, thank you so much for your time, Uma. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and learn more about us at softwaremisadventures.com. You can also write to us at hello at softwaremisadventures.com. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, take care.